This morning out of the second chapter of Acts, again we start in verse 14a and then move to verse 22 and following. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you as you yourselves know. This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption." You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on his throne, Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. The word of life. Thanks be to God. Well, we continue to look at the power of the resurrection in people's lives. And these readings from Acts, we continue to explore also what impact it might have upon our lives if we too grasp the power of what God is doing through Jesus in the resurrection. A couple of weeks ago, I had opportunity to write an editorial for the Tulsa World. In there, I mentioned my concern that so many people want to celebrate Easter Sunday. That's not actually concern. That part is great. But the fact that for so many, it seems to be a one-day celebration and does not seem to have an impact on their lives going forward. They do not seem to grasp the immensity of this revelation of what God has done for you and for me and for the world through Jesus in the resurrection. But as we read through these stories in Acts, what we find throughout these accounts, what we read about are lives changed. These first believers, these first disciples, their lives are dramatically changed once they realize that God has raised Jesus from the dead, that somehow Jesus is still alive and present to them, and God is still doing ministry through Him, through the risen Lord in the world. Peter is trying to make sense of this mind-boggling experience that he and the disciples and others are having. He is not sure how to put this all into 
order, how to make sense of this in the context of his own life. But by the time he stands up to give this speech that we read a portion of this morning, he is ready to tell his fellow Israelites, those who have gathered to listen, what he believes God has done and is, in do, and is doing through this Jesus. And of course what he says is that even though Jesus came and you all knew him, he says to those listening, and even if you didn't know him, you heard of him because of his deeds of power that God had done through him, these wonderful signs that God has manifested through him, even though all of that happened, you misinterpreted who he was and what he was doing, and therefore you killed him, you crucified him. But it was a misinterpretation, and God has vindicated him by raising him from the dead. In verse 24, Peter puts it this way, But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. As Peter tries to make sense of this astounding occurrence, he goes back to Scripture to see if he can figure out how this fits with his Jewish faith. He's trying to figure out how this fits with the God he has known and the God that Jesus talked about. And how could this fit into his lived experience of faith going forward? He looks to Scripture. Specifically, he's quoting in this week's reading from the Psalms. It's important to remember that in Peter's time, the Psalms were considered all, 150 of them, written by King David. You will remember David, the second king of Israel, seen as the one great king, leader of the Israelites, one whom God had anointed and selected and chosen and drawn forth to be the leader of God's chosen people. And not only chosen him, but promised to him that one of his descendants would continue to be on the throne, to reign over God's people and to represent God's will in the world. So Peter looks back into the Psalms and finds these promises and, and these hints of the resurrection. We realize that reading through Acts that Peter and the others read the Psalms looking for them to apply to either David or to the promised Messiah. In the case today, Peter and the other disciples are interpreting this quote from the Psalms to apply to the promised Messiah. So by the time we get to verse 29, Peter is saying, Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on his throne. Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying, He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that, 
all of us are witnesses. Peter is trying to make sense of his faith and his experience and to understand what God might be doing in his life. Peter and the other disciples use what United Methodists call the Wesleyan quadrilateral to make sense of their faith experience. Quad meaning four, four sources or criteria of faith that John Wesley held up in his writing as important for any one of us to interpret our own life experiences through the lens of faith. So Peter and the other disciples utilize scripture then look to their own tradition of faith couple that with their experience of god and then reason this out to explain what god has done through jesus in terms of raising him from the dead using those four criteria is a healthy way for any and all of us to make sense of faith in our own life the guidebook that we use that talks about these four criteria or sources of faith is called the Book of Discipline of the United Methodist Church. It's revised every four years by a representative group of United Methodists looking to make sure that our faith and our witness stays relevant. But some parts of the book, they do not change. A section in the early pages of the book talks about our theological task and how every one of us as united methodists is responsible for being able to articulate our faith why we believe how that impacts the way we live and so on i want to read you just a few sentences out of the book of discipline that talk about how we use these criteria and how it impacts our lives on the personal level, experience is to the individual as tradition is to the church. It is the personal appropriation of God's forgiving and empowering grace. Experience authenticates in our own lives the truths revealed in Scripture and illumined in tradition enabling us to claim the Christian witness as our own. And then on the next page, it goes on to speak about reason and says this, By reason, we relate our witness to the full range of human knowledge, experience, and service. Since all truth is from God, efforts to discern the connections between revelation and reason, faith, and science, grace, and nature are useful endeavors in developing credible and communicable doctrine. So they're trying to point us in the same direction that actually we find that Peter and the other disciples go when they're trying to make sense of their faith. So the question for us in our day and in our time is how are we doing with that? How are we doing in terms of making sense of our own faith? What scriptures are we drawing upon to ground our faith, to guide us in our living? What do we consider to be the core of our faith? 
And how does that shape and form us in terms of decisions that we make and the life that we live? Are we able to bring together Scripture, tradition, experience via our reason? Are we able to bring those sources to bear in our own life in a way that we can speak about our faith in a way that would be intelligible to somebody else? Are we able to make sense of our lives as we look at it through a lens of faith? Are we able to fashion a faith that uniquely fits our experience and explains how God is at work in our personal lives? Of course, we all inherit the basics from Scripture, from Peter and the other witnesses to the resurrection. But finally, if we're going to have a deep and vital faith that grounds our lives and guides our living, then we have to look at their experience and their time and see how that intersects with our experience and how we make sense of that so that we find meaning and purpose in the way that we live. I've been telling you for almost two years now that I've entered into an experience the United Methodist Church offers called the Academy for Spiritual Formation. It's an experience where you make a commitment for two years to go away for one week each quarter, to go to a retreat center so you can have some time away, some time with God. The leaders of the Academy for Spiritual Formation structure the day so that it opens and closes with a focus on God. So we open with worship every morning and close the day with worship. During the day, we always participate together when we're there that week in Holy Communion. We also hear lectures, but have time for silence and reflection and time to read Scripture. We enjoy some fellowship times and some meals together. But all of it is designed to help us begin to understand the history of spirituality. So every time we're uh, away, there's faculty people who are teaching about a certain epic of Christian history and how Christians in that time and place practice their faith. Then in between those weeks, we have books to read that inform us further about that. But all of this is offered to those who are seriously looking and intentionally trying to center their lives on God. And so they are modeling this structure or this rhythm of life to try to help us do just that. All of it finally focuses on the purpose of helping each one of us design our own rhythm of life that honors God and puts God at the center of all of our living. I've got one more week to go, It'll be the eighth week, a week from Monday. The emphasis of that week will be asking each one of us who are going through that experience, how are you going to continue to live like this so that your life demonstrates that you've put God at the center or God at the forefront or built your life on the foundation of your faith? How are you doing with that? Is your life structured in such a way that it's clear to you that God is at the center of things? If someone began to follow you around with a video camera, 
Would they be able to catch any clues that you were a person of faith? Would they be able to see hints or behaviors that demonstrated that you were a follower of Christ? Would there be anything on the video footage if they followed you around for a day that clearly marked you as a disciple of Jesus Christ, one who has structured their whole life around their commitment to love God and love neighbor as Jesus taught? Peter proclaims, That he and the other disciples have come to believe that God has acted in a unique way and raised Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, dead, and buried. He's been raised from the dead and still is alive and available to each and every one of us. He says to his fellow Israelites, even those who are not believers that God has done this, you all are witnesses You know this has happened. I'm telling you now that not only was he crucified, but he's been raised from the dead. At the very end of our reading today, Peter proclaims that all of us are witnesses. That all of us know what God has done and have heard this proclamation about what God is doing The question for us is, what kind of witnesses are we? Did Easter Sunday make any difference in how we live our lives? Last Sunday, while we were gathered here with our confirmation class, we read that portion of Acts that talks about 3,000 people responded to Peter's proclamation. And I invited you to think with me about how that could happen In our time, in our church, how could we reach 3,000 people responding in faith? My suggestion was that it would take each and every one of us, that it would take all of us waking up every morning thinking about how God might want to use me today, asking ourselves how might the love of God pour through me today so that somebody else who's not experienced that love of God in Christ might come to faith. I suggested that God could use us in a more powerful way if each of us, if all of us, opened ourselves to God's leading us in terms of how we witness to God's love or how we were willing to do good for someone else during our lives. And that if each of us made this a regular part of the way we thought about our faith and that God was reaching out not just to each of us but was wanting to reach others through us, then surely God could reach 3,000 in our midst. Final illustration is related to the story I told you on Easter Sunday about South Africa in a time where they were racially segregated in the period we call apartheid, where it was illegal in so many ways for blacks and whites to intermingle, for their lives to intersect. But the story, you remember, was that a black pastor planning for Easter and for Holy Week took the step of going to a white judge 
and asking for an audience. And he was granted that audience. And when he arrived, he asked the white judge if he might come to his church, a black church, and be a part of the washing of the feet ceremony. And he asked the judge if he would be willing to wash the feet of the woman who had been working as his household servant for some 30 years. The judge agreed that he would come as a private act of faith and he would be glad to do that. And so he went to that church and I told you the impact that it had. The part of the story I didn't have a chance to finish on Easter Sunday morning was that there was an investigative reporter in that part of town that night working on a different story. But he spotted this white judge in a part of town that the judge shouldn't have been in at night. And so he followed the judge and watched from the back of the church to see what happened. And oh my, did he have a story by the time that service was over. He rushed back to the newspaper office and typed the story up and gave it to his editors. They made it the headline of the newspaper the next day. Public criticism came quickly condemning a white man who would dare to go to a black church and wash a black woman's feet and then kiss them of all things. And he began to get letters condemning him. Letters from people saying how disgusted they were with his actions. And quickly the conversation turned to questioning whether this man who had been esteemed up until this point was even fit to be a judge at all in that society. When the black pastor began to hear about all the hate and criticism that was being poured out upon the judge, he went to see him again. When he came in this time, he said, I must apologize. I ask for your forgiveness. I never meant for all of this to impact you this way, for all this criticism to call your reputation or your career into question, I ask you to forgive me. The judge said, you have done nothing wrong. There's nothing to forgive. But if it would make you feel better for me to forgive you for nothing, then I forgive you. And the black pastor said, thank you so much. I feel so much better. But despite the criticism, the pastor said to the judge, you have done a great work for my people. You've helped heal the pain of this terrible segregation. He said, I could preach a thousand sermons and never be able to proclaim the gospel the way that you did. Peter says, we are all witnesses. And I tell you, I believe that to be true. For I can preach a thousand sermons, and I cannot be the witness that you can be. Amen. And thanks be to God.